DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from Dr. Lillis's lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's an author of several books, including Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation on Prayer, and Fire from Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. In this particular series of conversations, we'll focus on the spiritual writings of St. Teresa of Avila, and in particular, her autobiography. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. It's good to be with you, Chris. I am so looking forward to talking about Chapter 9 of the Book of Her Life of St. Teresa of Avila. This is a watershed moment, isn't it? Uh, it it's a powerful, powerful chapter. Uh, it, it, it's shorter, but it has so much going on in it that um, it's it's worth spending a whole session just trying to unpack a little a little bit of it, which I, I think we hopefully we'll be able to do by the end of the show. Well, let me read that pivotal sentence. Um, and it's a long one, but it's an important one. She starts out, well, my soul now was tired, and in spite of its desire, my wretched habits would not allow it to rest. It happened to me that one day, entering the oratory, I saw a statue they had borrowed for a certain feast to be celebrated in the house. It represented the much-wounded Christ and was very devotional, so that beholding it, I was utterly distressed in seeing him that way. For it well represented that he suffered for us. Okay, that was more than just one sentence. It was actually three, but that was an important moment for Teresa, wasn't it? It will be as if she's not simply looking at a statue, but beyond the statue, she's seeing the man himself or through the statue or by means of the statue. And and so this is actually um, a little bit of a tangent and footnote um, so much is made out of Ignatian prayer today where, where you use your imagination, and she's going to talk about that too, to picture Christ crucified in your imagination and being present to him that way. And a lot of great things can happen in prayer, but we also have a tradition in our prayer that's more alive in the Dominicans, the Franciscans, and the Carmelites of what's called exterior composition of place or the sacramentality of sacred art. When you have an object of devotion that moves you to prayer, it can be a incredible aid. And this is what we have described. This was a statue she was probably passing by, you know, nearly every day. But this time when she passed by it on her way to choir, this time something happened. There was a moment of grace. And all of a sudden, she wasn't walking by a statue. All of a sudden, she was walking into the praetorium. She was walking into the Ecce Huomo, where Pilate tells the crowd, behold the man. I've actually seen this statue and the suffering of Christ that it depicts. If you spend any time with it in prayer at all, um, you're going to be moved by it. This time, though, it wasn't simply kind of 
a surface emotional response. Something touched her in the core of her being. We know from the last chapter that she felt imprisoned. She wanted God more than she had. She wanted to be more devout than she was. This was an important thing to her. But she felt trapped. She felt held back by her own sin, by by attachments that weren't for the glory of God. And so every time she began to pray, the attachments looked like they were getting worse and not better, and so she'd give up on prayer. And it caused her to kind of live a duplicitous life where she looked like she was praying and being devout, but inside she was in turmoil, and she didn't have the peace she desired. And this moment, as you were saying, Chris, this is the moment where she encounters Christ Jesus Christ humiliated for our sake, Christ scourged for our sakes, Christ by whose stripes we are healed. She encounters that Christ. It reduces her to tears. These tears are absolutely essential for conversion. What do you make of her point of saying that she was tired and that her soul was tired at this particular moment right before this happens? She'll reflect on this a little bit later in this work and in subsequent works. A lot of people kind of stay where she was in the spiritual life, thinking that they, in a certain way, outsmarting God because they get the best of both worlds. They get a little bit of sweetness from God in prayer, but they also get to enjoy their attachments. And God is kind of all or nothing. So that posture where you have feet on each side of the fence, it's a very exhausting place to be. You dissipate, you spend a lot of energy trying to keep up both sides of your life. The end result is that you find yourself spiritually exhausted. You just can't keep it up. And God, in his great mercy, oftentimes looks for that moment when you're spiritually exhausted. So does the evil one. But God also looks for moments when you are a little bit more vulnerable, precisely because you are tired, to reveal himself and to call you into deeper conversion. And that seems to be what happened this time. Yeah, it's so poignant when she talks about how she thanked him for those wounds that he bore, and that it seemed to her that it broke her heart. It And she just started begging him, didn't she? Yes. She compares herself to Mary Magdalene. And again, Mary Magdalene is a biblical figure from whom Jesus cast seven demons. And so that seven is a, a number of fullness. She was completely possessed. She was under control of the evil one. She suffered from all seven capital sins, you could say. And God, through a powerful encounter, delivered her and freed her from that bondage. Well, Teresa of Avila, what she discovers is the freeing thing. What is the power of Jesus that frees us? The power of Jesus that frees us is revealed in his suffering and his passion. It's a love that will not be vanquished by our sinfulness. And that's what she sees when she sees Jesus scourged and crowned with thorns Jesus, who was sorely afflicted for our sake, 
she beholds him and it's a healing moment because she sees the love of the Father. How radically far God will go to make sure we know that notwithstanding all our weaknesses and all our hostility towards him, all our reluctance, he loves us. Once you've been touched by that, you can't quite be the same again. In this moment, as you said, she was recalling Mary Magdalene, reflecting on that, but she was also in this great tears are flowing. Can you talk to us about that too? Because sometimes, I'm sure we've mentioned this in previous conversations over many times we've spoken, but this welling up, I can't help but think of in the way of perfection and and in so many other of her writings where she talks about how grace and, and these imagery of water, and here she is, she's just, she's just, tears are just flowing from her eyes. Yeah, in particular, she asks St. Mary Magdalene to help her maintain this gift of tears. These kind of tears that she's describing in the Fathers of the Church, you'll find them referred to as the gift of tears or the tears of compunction. Uh, they're like the tears that we ought to shed when we go to confession, tears of contrition over our sins. Compunction means you're pierced to the heart. You can speak about perfect contrition, where um, you realize how you've been living, not only individual things you've done, but your whole manner of life. You realize there's something in your whole manner of life that's not responding to the excessive way you've been loved. And in that realization, your heart's pierced. The only response that can come out are tears. Tears are shed because you realize, you see, you experience the suffering love of God for you personally. And this is something I hope for everyone who's listening to us right now. When you can know how much God loves you in particular, you who are an irrepeatable instance of um, his glory, that he's summoned into existence as part of his eternal plan. He's chosen to make you part of it because the, his creation wouldn't be complete without you in it. There's no one who's an accident. Everyone is part of a great plan. And not only are you part of a great plan, but you're loved for who you are. God yearns you to become who you are. And he sees that, he knows it, he contemplates it. And he has suffered for it all the way to the cross, to death, through his passion, through his humiliation. He suffered so that we might know how much we are loved. When that reality, the passion of Christ, unveils to you the love of the Father, and your heart is pierced, now you have in you a new movement or a new energy to begin to change your life. And that's what she's experiencing. But what she also experiences here, and this gets to your point, is that she will have these tears and it will work for a little bit, but then she'll slide back a little and she'll slide forward and she'll slide back. So this is an incredible grace. She, she told the Lord she didn't want to get up until he gave her the grace never to fully backslide again, but still she's struggling. So the Lord is going through the intercession of the saints and the angels, but in this case, St. Mary Magdalene, the Lord is going to send her other graces of conversion that will help her root her more deeply in these tears of compunction, help her receive this gift of tears. It's with the gift of tears. The fathers of the church called it 
the second baptism. In the first baptism, we are forgiven our sins and original sin is taken away and we're given a gift of the Holy Spirit. In the second baptism or a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit can also be called or second conversion it gets called, that baptismal grace we first received is renewed in us and strengthened and deepened in a whole new way. With that, a new power to follow Jesus is communicated into us. The inflow of the Holy Spirit begins to take hold of our lives in a way that it hadn't up until this moment. How does he do that? Through this gift of tears, through the tears that the ache you have when you realize how much you're loved by God creates space in your soul for God to work in a brand new way. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these videos, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. That's what's so incredible about this moment. I can read it over and over again because here she is. She's tired. She's walking past a statue that had, as you said, she's probably seen before. They put it up for this holy season or for this particular moment for them to augment their worship. And yet it captures her. And as you said, she has this awareness she is breaking down in tears. She's down on the ground and she says, I am not getting up. She's literally telling the Lord, I will not get up unless you grant me what I am begging for. I think that scene is so incredible that she just, I am not leaving the spot until you grant me this grace. It's a, an important moment in the ask and it will be given to you. Seeking you will find, ask and it will be given to you. It's just so powerful. Yes, it is powerful. 
Notice, though, if for those of you who are maybe reading along with us, if you continue in that paragraph, she beseeches God. These tears begin to flow. You realize how loved you are. You feel that ache in your heart. Asking God for graces, being inspired to pray when you're under this influence of the Holy Spirit, what happens is those petitions are heard by God, of course. They're also efficacious. They're doing something in you as you make them. The other thing that she does, though, she not only asks not to fall again and not to backslide again, she also describes for us a manner of prayer that she had been doing, but now she begins to make more earnestly. And she describes it as trying to picture Jesus when he's by himself, Jesus when he's all alone, Jesus when he's most vulnerable. And you could call this interior composition of place. One of those places would be to enter into the agony of the garden with Jesus, to go to Mount Olivet with Jesus the night before he died. He's all alone. No one can stay up with him. And what's interesting, she'll say this in a future work, when you are sorrowful, Jesus is such a good friend, he's sorrowful with you. And when you're joyful, he's joyful with you. But also, when you feel all alone and misunderstood, he's there with you too. And that agony in the garden, when you feel completely abandoned by others, uh, that there's no one else there for you, he's there with you. If you think about this in terms of Teresa's life, you know, her mother's died some time ago, her father has died. Jesus is all she has. And Jesus allows himself to be pictured by her in the agony of the garden. And when she does this, when she makes this act of prayer, it renews her encounter with his presence when she looked upon the statue of the Ece Uomo. Her use of her imagination, as it were, prolongs the grace of the gift of tears. And so she has, so to speak, fans um, into flame the gift of the Spirit that she's received. Can you talk about that line that she has in the section 4 of chapter 9, where she says that this, this is the method of prayer I then used. Since I could not reflect discursively with the intellect, I strove to represent Christ within me, and it did me greater good. Now, what jumped out at me was the Christ in me. There is such a type of union there that it's through him, with him, and in him. I mean, the prayer had become so, I'm not saying it's the prayer of union. It's like, you know, we don't know how to pray as we ought. So it's the spirit that helps us in groaning that in this moment, it's like he takes over in a way and guides us to share in what our heart is truly desiring. Does that make sense? It makes beautiful sense, and it's very well articulated. And this was what I was trying to describe in terms of interior composition of place isn't so much us producing anything. It's about the fact that the Word already dwells inside us with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a gift we received via baptism, and He dwells there to reveal to us the love of the Father. How do we attend to the Word? How do we receive the Word 
who's dwelling in us. Well, one of the things you can do is withdraw from earthly concerns, withdraw from paying attention to things that are going on in the outside of your life, and turn your attention to the fact that this living word is in you, communicating to you right now. Well, you could say, how do you do that? And that's where this use of the imagination is helpful. Regardless of what you do or you do not do, the word is communicating into you by the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father. That's a reality of your baptism that's going on even right now while you're listening to this. And that theological reality, you can either be receiving it and attending it and welcoming it, or you can be ignoring it or inattentive to it or re- and even reckless with it. Up until this time of her life, she's been reckless with that gift. But something happened when she looked upon that statue. She had an encounter with the immensity of God's love, and now it's disposed her to want to welcome that love more thoroughly in a way that she'll never backslide again. And so this technique, this method that she's using, instead of trying to do something that doesn't really help her in prayer very much, a reason expose about some mystery of the faith, trying to reverse engineer St. Paul's thoughts in Romans or something like that. Instead, just picture Jesus. When people write icons, they're kind of doing the same thing. An icon of Christ, while they're writing the icon or drawing the icon, illuminating it with colors and so forth, The whole thing is a prayer where they're trying to picture Christ who's speaking to them in their hearts. They're trying to engage their imagination with the theological truth in their hearts. So they're choosing to use their imagination to get in touch with the theological reality that's unfolding in them. And that's what Teresa's describing here. She's not talking about writing an icon, but she is talking about picturing Jesus with your imagination. Seeing his gaze, let him look upon you with love. John Paul II told young people on more than one occasion, look for the loving gaze of Jesus who gazes on you with love. Once you've discovered those eyes gazing on you, you will find the answer to all of life's most perplexing questions. This is exactly what Teresa of Avila has done here. In using her imagination, what is she searching for? She's searching for the gaze of Jesus, the gaze of the word of the Father, who's communicating the Father's love into her heart, even as she tries to pray. This, as she would say, this became something that would be a part of her prayer. She would continually go back and reflecting over the years from this point forward, because it was such a pivotal moment for her, it kind of anchored what would come in the years to come. Is that right? Yeah, and in particular, this very special spiritual exercise that she's described, she'll do it, take an hour before she goes to bed, before she falls asleep, and she'll make the sign of the cross. She will go to Jesus in the agony of the garden and be with him that night for an hour before she goes to sleep. So this is a mental discipline she will keep alive really for the rest of her life in one form or another. This method of praying in which the mind makes no reflection means that the soul must either gain a great deal or lose itself by its attention going astray. If it advances, it goes a long way because it is moved by love. 
And so this is the other thing about any technique or method that gets used in prayer. So what we've just described is a method to try to attend to what Jesus is communicating to us in our soul. How do I welcome it? And this is one way to use our imagination to put ourselves in the agony of the garden. But what makes it effective? The love with which you do it. If you're doing it to get a result, some kind of therapeutic situation where you want to feel good about yourself or a situation, or you're doing it because you have some scheme for self-improvement about you know, how you're going to overcome this vice or that bad habit in your life. It's not that that's completely bad, and I think God can do something with it. But to the degree that you're looking for results rather than seeking the Lord out of love, you are actually not blocking or not welcoming everything the Word wants to say to you. Her disposition is so humble at this stage. What Teresa begins to want to do is just simply allow Jesus to communicate what he wants to communicate the way he wants to communicate it. And this method is just a means to avail herself to that kind of communication. Well, you can tell me if I'm off base here, but as you were speaking, I couldn't help but remember what our Lord will tell us at the institution of the Eucharist. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember. And here's this moment of profound communion in prayer for her that is transformative at this particular junction in her life. And she continually goes back to that in remembrance and in communion. But for many of us, we may have had those kind of moments where we've been touched in our heart, some that, that moment of compunction. And to go back and to remember and to bring that into our prayer to once again touch that grace, bring it back into our consciousness. Again, I ask, does that make sense? (laughs) It does. And just to kind of deepen this, she goes on to explain that she is not very good at using her reason to figure, to reverse engineer St. Paul, but she's also not very good at picturing Jesus either. She struggles with that as well. She goes on to explain that it's not an easy thing. So what do you do when you have a lazy imagination? And I think a lot of us do that just can't picture the face of Jesus. This is where she recommends making sure you have a good book to turn your attention because the thing that you don't want to do is fall into daydreaming about everything else except the Lord. You're not really making a return for the love he's given you. The effort is to try to love him in return, to try to do an act of love towards him. And so if your intellect goes all over the place or your memory goes all over the place, it's not very helpful. But a book helps you recall the, um, the effort that you're making in prayer. Do this in memory of me, to enter into that memory of the church, that memory of Christ, and to let it shape our memory, let ourselves become conscious of it, is a means, a way, that we avail our whole soul of everything that the Lord wants to communicate into our depths. We'll continue this conversation in our next episode. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on whatever platform you obtain your podcasts. 
There, too, you can also listen to an audio version of the complete autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.